0: Humans are the ultimate habitat modifier. We change the plants that are there. We change ground cover by um, putting down concrete and asphalt. We put up these big buildings and we provide food. So whether it's road killed animals or landfills or even just our garbage can in our backyard or a dumpster, we are constantly providing or making food available for animals.
1: Welcome to From the Field, a podcast logging real-life scientists and their efforts to improve the world one study at a time. I'm Priya Shelley. In this episode, I speak with Alexis Brewer, a doctoral candidate at the City University of New York in the Ecology and Evolutionary Biology Programme. Alexis focuses her research on the intersection of urban ecology and scavenger ecology and how humans affect biodiversity. When we drive on the highway or a wooded area, we occasionally come across an unfortunate animal that's been struck by a vehicle. And sometimes we even see other animals pecking away at their remains. This is roadkill, and it's one example of a human-wildlife interaction that Alexis is interested in studying. So how does someone decide they're going to study animal carcasses and what feeds off of them? Alexis is the first to admit that this kind of gross work wasn't necessarily what she thought about when her interest in wildlife began. In fact, it took a few meandering steps to get there.
0: I certainly was very interested in science and nature as a kid. My dad was really great Um, he's one that he loves birding and he's always pointing out different animals and just being kind of endlessly patient but when I went to college I started studying neuroscience and As much as I loved that field, it really wasn't my ultimate passion. So I ended up taking time off after college and doing other things. I worked in a variety of fields. I even danced professionally for a little while. Then one day decided I was ready to go back to school. So um, I kind of looked at what my passions were and ended up getting a master's in animal behavior and conservation where I studied how environmental degradation and habitat fragmentation affected howler monkey diets, like the actual nutritional components of their diet, and really found out that I loved kind of this chemical ecology background um, and, and research, finding out you know what the building blocks are that are affecting behavior and diversity that we see in nature. And I really wanted to get my PhD. I was so excited about that. But I didn't know what project I wanted to work on. But I, I wanted that focus, that same idea that I was looking for building blocks and kind of the fundamental mechanisms of what's driving change. And that's kind of what led me to my current project. Scavenger ecology is really is about who is eating what. Much like predation or any other focus on feeding, but we're actually talking about how animal what happens to animals when they die from other causes. You know, whether it's a disease or if they fall off a cliff, um, get hit by a car, for example. That organism doesn't just sit there. Um, it provides food for other for other species of all sorts. So we're really trying to look at that process of who finds the carcass, who eats the carcass, and how they compete or facilitate each other's
1: interactions. As Alexis mentioned, humans interact with animals in a lot of different ways, and one of the biggest ways is inadvertently feeding them. In doing so, people have become active participants in the ecosystem, and it's important to mitigate the negative effects on both the human and the animal in order to reduce conflict. It's a role that's vital to Alexis's research.
0: Here in the Northeast, we have black bears. You're out looking for food. You're happy to eat grasses and leaves and berries and the occasional carcass if you find it, and here you come along, a trash can, and it has cooked chicken in it, and Smells delicious. And what are you going to do, right? You're going to eat that trash. And it probably has all sorts of other good stuff in it and some bad stuff. So, you know, you might be eating plastics while you are eating that garbage. Um, and if you're on the person side, now you have your garbage can ripped into. It's made a giant mess. You're probably, if you have pets, you're worried about your pets, your children. And this creates a lot of space for conflict, but it doesn't necessarily need to, which is kind of when I start talking with the public often where I start so I say you know let's first of all just accept that that bear is just being a bear you know they're not trying to cause problems they're just hungry and you would be too but then we talk about ways to ameliorate that so um, whether it's you know getting that bear proof trash can keeping your pets indoors another common human wildlife conflict in urban areas are coyotes. People are always worried about their cats and their dogs getting eaten by coyotes and um, all sorts of other problems. And so, you know, it leads to people, often cities um, or municipalities killing coyotes in urban locations. But once again, that coyote is just being a coyote. And sure, they might eat our trash. They might occasionally take a cat or two. But they're, you know, they're just trying to subsist in this environment that we've changed The coyotes can just keep going about being a coyote um, and doing great things for the environment, like, you know, controlling rat populations or deer populations. Kind of having this healthy scavenger community and predator community can help people. But first, we have to see them as part of the environment and us as also like how our actions affect them, which is kind of the key for my research. I think it's really important to discuss how we are integral to it. When they understand that people are part of an ecosystem and that all of our actions are going to affect that ecosystem, it changes the way we think about ecology and urban ecology. And this is really where urban ecology is moving towards, is seeing humans as integral instead of the other in ecosystems. And the best part about seeing it is that way, First of all, it doesn't demonize us, so it's not that we're this horrible thing happening to the environment, though we do bad things, you know, like we are creating climate change, we are modifying habitats in in ways that will create really lasting impacts, and that can have a negative effect, but we can also modify our behaviors to have a positive impact, and getting people to think that way gets them, well, makes people hopeful, frankly.
1: When scavengers aren't eating our leftovers from the trash, they're often seeking out carcasses. To an onlooker, the decomposition of a carcass looks and smells pretty gross, and the immediate reaction is probably to get away from it as quickly as possible. But if we look closer, we'll find that there's actually something really incredible happening. The decomposition is achieved primarily through the work of invertebrates, like flies, maggots, and beetles, in addition to scavenger animals. Together, they make quick work of the carcass and make it seem as if it wasn't even there.
0: One of my favorite quotes from a uh, forest manager about my job is, there's a, a yuck factor to what I do, uh, without a doubt. We have microbiota in our digestive system, and our, on our skin, um, and every other animal is exactly the same. And so th- those microbiota don't stop functioning when we stop functioning. They continue their own cellular processes. Their byproducts, their waste byproducts, start building up in an animal. So that is often what leads to a lot of putrefaction. Insects find the carcasses very quickly. When we're actually placing carcasses, you know, the insects are there the second we put down a carcass or before, and they will, depending on which animal we're talking about, will either consume the carcass or lay eggs on the carcass. And as their offspring hatch. That is what will consume the carcass. So flies are really, in here in the Northeast, are one of the biggest invertebrate decomposers. But we also have carrion beetles and a variety of other beetle species. So it's usually beetles and flies here. And there's actually a little bit of competition between the invertebrates and the vertebrates. So the invertebrates release essentially things that can both attract a scavenger but eventually a vertebrate scavenger actually wants a pretty fresh carcass. So if the invertebrates have the carcass for too long and a vertebrate doesn't find it, it will become too putrefied. And they, unless they're very hungry, a vertebrate won't eat that carcass. But if you have, say, a lot of fly larvae, which is gross to think about, but if you have a lot of fly larvae on a carcass, those fly lar- larvae can actually also support vertebrates. So songbirds will come eat those, their essentially maggots is what most people call them. So, you know, the songbirds will come and they'll pick off maggots from the carcass. So it creates this own little micro-ecosystem within just one essentially dead body, whatever species that happens to be.
1: If you're not really feeling it with the putrefied carcasses, don't worry, you're not alone. The unappealing nature of decomposing carrion even has an effect on the amount of research that's being conducted in the science community. But Alexis shares that gathering the data is an important step towards truly understanding an ecosystem.
0: You look at the literature and you look for predation, for example, you'll find thousands and thousands of articles. Even the same thing when we talk about herbivores or pretty much other any other way of getting nutrition. Um, it's very prevalent in the literature. But when you go look for scavenger research, it's orders of magnitude lower than anything else, though that is changing in the last 10 or, or even 15 years. Scavenger research has become more popular, but it's definitely understudied. And part of that's because people find it gross, frankly. I mean, you know, it's a weird thing um, to think about. As I have gotten into this project, I've realized how fundamental scavenging is. And what's amazing is that we can really capture a lot of different things in an ecosystem by studying scavengers. We're not just looking at one species or even one group of species. We're looking at a really wide variety of animals that all provide different, slightly different ecosystem services and functions. And that means that we can really assess the health of an ecosystem Better. Plus, we can increase our knowledge about how energy is getting transferred through a food web, which is really fundamental when we talk about how healthy and f- how well an ecosystem is functioning.
1: A food chain is defined as a series of organisms that eat one another, and energy and nutrients flow from one animal to the next. For example, when an acorn is eaten by a chipmunk and a chipmunk is eaten by a fox. Food webs are a little more dynamic in the sense that they consist of several intersecting food chains and show the different things an animal can eat or be eaten by. Those food webs consist of a multitude of mammals, and Alexis wants to research them ranging from the most traditional to the most unique.
0: In general, we're really looking at carnivores and omnivores. So uh, the most common ones we talk about are bear, coyotes, raccoons, red foxes. But we also see some really non-traditional scavengers sometimes when food is really scarce. So deer will scavenge. Um, There's some really interesting pictures from body farms where deer are actually eating bones, which could be a calcium thing, but it could also just be hungry. Then we have another group of scavengers, which of course are obligate scavengers, which just mean that they have to scavenge to survive. Most of our carnivores and omnivores are don't have to scavenge. They can predate different animals or eat non-meat items. But the only obligate scavengers in the world uh, are vultures. And so they're an avian species, obviously, and they are really have evolved to find carcasses, and by and large they don't hunt, so they really can't survive if they don't find these carcasses and consume
1: them, frankly. In vulture culture, it's pretty rare to eat anything but carry-on. If the meat isn't fresh, the vulture still consumes rotten carcasses that may even be toxic to other animals. By doing this, vultures are preventing the spread of disease. Alexis shares the typical behavior of a vulture and how they're specifically designed to scavenge.
0: Yeah, they're amazing. So turkey vultures are big birds. Um, They have a pretty large wingspan, so they're able to soar and use very little energy while they're soaring. They're very metabolically efficient. And they have this huge nasal cavity and this giant olfactory bulb. So we're really just talking that they're essentially bloodhounds on wings. So they fly around in this very lazy pattern. That's often when people see them. And they do this teeter-tottering motion in the air, which allows them to essentially scent the air. And as they get closer to a carcass, that's when they do that circling behavior that people really associate with vultures it's also how they're also riding the thermals while they're doing that so that's increasing their efficiency um if they're in the mornings they it's called kettling they will ride the thermals to get higher and higher as well and that also creates circling behavior but they're really doing most of their searching through you know their sense of smell which is which is quite fascinating and it's not unique in the bird world but it is unusual very few birds rely on their sense of smell to find food. They have pretty small beaks. It's not this big eagle beak or even a hawk beak that's good at tearing things. You know, it's it's actually, that's not really there. Since they're not predators, they're actually not good at doing that um, motion of ripping and tearing, which is actually why they rely on mammals often with really large carcasses. The mammals will open the carcasses for their own purposes, so they can eat the carcass. But when the mammals leave, then the, the vultures can partake. Um, and the same thing: their claws, their they are not. Um, their feet aren't these big talons like you would see once again in a in a bird of a bird of prey that is actually a predator. They're kind of wussy, actually. <laughs> they're, <laughs> they're not very. You know, they can't really grasp things exceptionally well. They can perch and they can walk and things like that. But that's about it.
1: Vultures are starting to do something that doesn't involve teetering around corpses. They're visiting landfills and eating trash in huge numbers. What does that do to the food web and the ecosystem overall? Alexis has taken on projects to learn more about the behavior of vultures and their relationship with scavenging in human-dominated landscapes.
0: So I work in New York State. We have several projects. We have one project where we have... GPS tracking devices on turkey vultures and black vultures. That's actually a collaboration with Hawk Mountain in Pennsylvania. And so that is very vulture specific as well as a stable isotope study looking at the diets of vultures, which is also obviously vulture directed. So with the tracking data, we are actually looking at, so it's the geospatial data. There are actually these little backpacks that you put on um, Their back is a good place because they can't mess with it. It doesn't interfere with their flight. So yeah, they end up being little birdie backpacks. You know, these little trackers send us data. Um, For us, we do about every hour. Though different studies do different time periods. And it tells us where the bird moves. And then my study in particular, we're looking at actually human food sources. So in this case, we're talking about landfills because they're stable. Um, We know exactly where they are in space. And then we look to see how often the vultures are visiting landfills. Because if you talk to anybody that's been to a landfill or driven by a landfill or worked in a landfill, they will tell you you see vultures all the time. Dozens, if not hundreds, depending on the actual site. And the thing is, though, you can't... Vultures all kind of look the same, by and large. There's very little... You can't say, okay, that's vulture A and that's vulture B. They all kind of look the same. So the question is, is a vulture living in a landfill or are they visiting? Um, and what does that mean for their diet, their health, the overall population, and even their foraging strategies? What we're finding is it's, it's very individual. So you have some vultures that like landfills or spend a lot of time in landfills um, to be less anthropomorphic about it, and other vultures that don't that really avoid the landfills and the thing is we don't know why it could be life stage it could be opportunity it could be breeding status so vultures communally roost when they're not breeding and actually they share information about food probably unintentionally but you can imagine if you were sleeping in a group and someone showed up like smelling like a hamburger you'd be like I'm going to follow that person tomorrow and see if they get a hamburger, right? And so (laughs) the vulture equivalent happens. So maybe they're learning from each other and following each other to the landfill. Not only do vultures use landfills, they use specific landfills. So it is a little anthropomorphic, but they have a favorite landfill essentially. So even if they have 10 landfills in their home range, they will actually visit one landfill above all the others. So it is selective in some way. That's one reason why vultures are so interesting to study in an urban context, because they're doing what they always do, and then people are doing what they always do, and we overlap in this way. With very little actual true behavior change, though, we are interested to see what happens over time to see if vultures are changing their foraging strategy to rely on these consistent food sources. Normally, scavenging is a timely endeavor, so you have to really spend a lot of time searching for your food, and that's um, not the case if you know your landfill is there every single day.
1: Alexis and her team are also learning more about vultures' diets by way of stable isotopes, which is the newest part of their research. Looking at stable isotopes allows them the potential to see the vultures' diets mimic those of people or something more suitable to a traditional vulture diet. The results could reveal a lot about vulture behavior and their relationship with people.
0: Isotopes are a great way to study a variety of things in ecology, but the way that I use them is essentially looking at diet. So stable isotopes are what they sound like. They're stable. They don't degrade. So if you remember in chemistry, there was Um, atomic number that was always really annoying, because it wouldn't just be 12, it'd be like 12 point blah, 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 blah. And you're like, why do I have to care? Like, why do we care about these decimal places, right? And that's all because of isotopes. So your normal carbon in the atmosphere, just in the environment, is carbon 12, and it's stable. And it's the most ubiquitous carbon, it's in every living thing, that's uh, the most common isotope. But we also have this carbon 13, that's stable, and it just has one extra, you know, just A little bit heavier, it doesn't degrade over time. It's not carbon 14. Um, It doesn't have any difference in the charge because it's just an extra neutron, and it hangs out in the environment. But it's pretty—it's comparatively rare to carbon 12. And so, what I actually do is I study the relationship between those two carbon sources as well. And we also use nitrogen as well. So we use carbon and nitrogen, and the reason why this really esoteric thing matters is because all of our food has this isotopic ratio that changes with different processes. So a lot of people, you're often finding variation basically from that ground level. If you remember, I love looking at those building blocks that change things, right? So we're talking that photosynthesis here. Your primary producers are using isotopes in different ways based on their photosynthetic pathway. So whether you're a C4 plant or a C3 plant or a CAMS plant, you are kind of sucking up these isotopes in different amounts. And then an herbivore comes along and it eats that plant. And this is the most classic you are what you eat scenario. And so that herbivore now looks like the plant that it ate and then something comes along and eats that herbivore and that predator looks like the herbivore which looks like the plant the way that i use it is looking at this urban ecology is trying to find out if we can look at human food because human especially in the united states we eat a lot of corn and we feed our animals corn we are a very corn based society the hypothesis that we're working with is that we can track the use of human human foods by animals by studying their isotopes Um, so we take a little sample from um, you can use a lot of different things we actually use feathers for the vultures because it's non-invasive they shed them naturally during molt and regrow them and so we don't have to even touch the animal. We just need to find their feather, um, which we usually find at their roosting locations. And we compare it to essentially the environment and to humans to see if the vultures look isotopically more like people or more like the natural environment.
1: Alexis's third project takes her all around New York State and City, where she places baited camera traps in various locales to observe the behavior of vertebrates and invertebrates in varying ecosystems.
0: Our third project, or the other main project that I work on, is actually a camera trapping study where we are capturing the entire scavenger diversity within New York State. So... Because they are interacting and affecting each other and affecting how the ecosystem functions, we believe it's very important to capture the whole community um, in some way. And since I'm based in New York City, I will, and if I'm leaving the city, um, we do have sites down here. We usually wake up and we go pick up our bait which we use roadkilled item uh, animals if we have them but if we don't we will use chicken which are we keep intact that way the animals have kind of this as naturally you know a natural of a carcass as they as we can give them and we drive to whatever site we're going to and we use motion sensitive cameras to monitor the community and the reason why we bait those cameras not everybody does um we bait our cameras because we are interested in scavengers, and we want to make sure we capture the entire community. Whenever we get to our site, we hike out. We place um, about 12 cameras per location. <laughs> the students always have a really fun time learning how to place the bait because they have to, uh, we we essentially tie down our bait so the animals don't take it away from our camera. Otherwise, we'll lose a lot of data. And so they have to like learn how to handle that. When we first started the project and started taking students on, I thought it would no one would want to do it. I was like, oh, this is kind of gross. The students love it. They're like, oh, I get to poke the chicken. Can I be the one that... <laughs> then we weigh our our bait um, because we really want to know how quickly those um, carcasses are getting removed from the environment. And then we come back every three days and weigh the bait until it's gone, which doesn't take too long, um, frankly, if the, especially if the vertebrates have access to the carcasses. And then we take all those pictures back to the lab and we... Um, process them for species and activity and all sorts of things.
1: Some change in activity that Alexis has observed may have to do with the change of the seasons, especially in the winter, where finding a food source can be the most challenging.
0: So we definitely see changes in seasonality um, with who's scavenging. And some of that's because here in the Northeast, most of our bears... uh, Hibernate. Removing that large predator from a community affects everything. So there's more food available for the smaller species, and that kind of releases some, some pressure from the smaller species. The other thing is that there's less food available. Very interestingly, some of our avian scavengers are actually more cooperative in or at least more tolerant in the winter. So we will find different species scavenging together at the same carcass at the same time. So we often see this in the corvids. So crows and blue jays will scavenge together, which I don't find in the summer. We definitely see a little bit more tolerance in the winter, which is kind of contrary to theory. uh, And we're still playing with that data right now. But when we start talking about our mammalian species, especially the ones that have more similar traits, so we see more competition. Raccoons and foxes, for example, we find a lot of really direct competition um, across all the seasons, actually. And that's because they're both mostly nocturnal. um, And actually, in really human-dominated habitats, there are studies that are showing that they're actually more nocturnal to essentially avoid people, is the theory or the working hypothesis. And when they function as a predator, these Raccoons and foxes, red foxes in particular, do function slightly differently. But when they act as scavengers, they are occupying more similar niche space. So that increases their rate of competition.
1: The way animals have shaped themselves to accommodate human infrastructure may seem unsettling. But it goes back to the understanding that humans are part of the landscape no matter how much we attempt to restore or rewild them. As much as the landscape is restored to how it may have looked before humans, we're still influencing the behavior of the landscape in many ways.
0: I'm certainly not anti-rewilding, but I think what sometimes these programs miss, it's not a fix, I guess. It's not like the end-all be-all. Because first of all, People are still going to use that space. We're still going to be part of um, the habitat. So, whether we're hiking or driving by or flying over in a plane, we're altering the habitat um, with our presence. And even if in a perfect scenario where you rewild successfully, it returns to whatever its previous state is, which Honestly, probably won't. But let's just say it does, and people don't go into it. We're still affecting that habitat through climate change, and we are in this new era. So it's always going to be different than it was.
1: By making this realization, it may be easier for us to have compassion for the environment.
0: When you go out for a hike, or you start even just looking in your backyard and realizing that your lawn and your garden, and your trash can, even it. Are, they're all supporting all of these different and insects. And you start seeing that appreciation grow in people. And then that's when people really want to protect nature, when they want to make a change and realize that they can make changes in their everyday life that can make an impact on their local ecosystem. So that can be things like planting local species to support insects, um, which will support your birds, which will, you know, it, it creates... Once again, this kind of entire ecosystem that a human is part of and that we can affect every day.
1: On the next episode of From the Field. So, as a salmon dies on the banks of a river, all of those nutrients that it got from eating out in the ocean have now been brought to the stream bank and are then going to be feeding the caddisflies and the stoneflies and the eagles and the bears. That connection, that that transport in the form of a salmon, of nutrients from one ecosystem to another, is so vital to what Alaska is. From the Field is written and created by me, your host, Priya Shelley. Original score by Dylan Gladhorn. Special thanks to our guest, Alexis Brewer. If you enjoyed this episode or have something to say, please leave a rating and review on iTunes. Don't forget to subscribe to our mailing list at fromthefieldpodcast.com, where you can receive notifications about behind-the-scenes photos, show notes, guest links, and more. From the Field is part of a Pila Case affiliate program. PILA case is the world's first 100% compostable, eco-friendly phone case. I actually happen to have two of my own. If you'd like to learn more about how you can purchase an eco-friendly phone case, visit fromthefieldpodcast.com forward slash PILA case. P-E-L-A-C-A-S-E.